Good morning, everyone. Uh, kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time, and thank you to those of you who will help lead. Uh, everybody else, we will be in Psalm 96, so if you want to turn there in your Bible or app. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. This summer, the first half of the summer, we're looking at uh, various psalms and trying to get a scope of really what's in the whole book. Last week, we looked at a really long one. That was a lot of fun. Today, we're in Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Todd, that was a very thoughtful and helpful prayer. Where'd you go? Thank you. Um, we do encourage you to pray for Ramadan this month. And uh, also, if you haven't seen the news today, there was a, a major attack in Orlando over the night. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of people killed. So let's be a, a praying church that prays beyond our own walls to the needs of those around us and around the world. We're in Psalm 96 uh, today. Uh, when I was in high school, oddly enough, given <laughs> that announcement I just made, one of the big blockbuster films was a film called Natural Born Killers. I want to ask you if you saw it, because you probably shouldn't admit that. Um, it's a Quentin Tarantino film, and I'm dating myself here a bit, but I was a junior in high school when that movie came out. Uh, I tried to watch it, and I literally only made it about 10 minutes into the opening scene, and then couldn't, couldn't take it. Just senseless brutality. But the premise of the movie is interesting, nonetheless. Uh, the main characters, Mickey and Mallory, go on a colossal killing spree simply because they love violence and they want attention. Uh, back then, that was kind of big news. It's not so much now. It happens a lot. But their spree dominates the media, and the people become ever more engrossed in the story. That's how the movie goes. There's this couple ferociously murder people as though it's nothing, and that leads to the notion, of course, that they must be natural-born killers. And the culture watches with a mix of both horror and excitement. It's amazing how prophetic that movie was. I'm not sure if people are actually born natural-born killers. I don't know if that exists. What I'm very sure of is that every human being is a natural-born worshiper. We are all worshipers. Naturally, we cannot not worship. And that's what I want to visit with you about uh, today. You and I must worship. That is integral to what it means to be a human being. Everyone does it. Everyone. Now let's first broaden our definition of worship a bit. So let me speak to two different groups of people. Uh, first, to those of you in the room who who are Christians, you follow Christ. Those of us in that camp tend to think probably of the word worship as meaning singing. You tend to think of worship being worship music. So the church gets together, and about 30 minutes or so of what we do every week is we sing. That is worship, right? We've just been doing it together this morning. It's a real joy. But the Bible describes worship as an all-day, everyday activity, not as 30 minutes of singing 
a week. Worship is something that we're doing continually. Religious or not, intentional or not, we're worshiping all the time. Now, to another group of people, those of you in the room who are, are not Christians, you're, you don't think of yourselves as followers of Christ. Um, by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here. You likely don't ever think about worship. Why would you? That's a, a religiously infused word. And yet, you, you likely regard worship as an overt spiritual activity. And maybe you're interested in it. Maybe that's why you're here. It is that, but that's not at all what Christianity claims to be the full scope of worship. Christians believe, right-thinking Christians, believe worship is something that we're doing all the time. Worship, if if I could aim at a kind of street-level definition, if you would, worship is quite simply assigning ultimate value to something or someone. And then as a result choosing to live your life for it. So to to repeat that, worship is simply assigning ultimate value to something or someone, and as a result, choosing to live your life for it. You can do that for things. You can do that for positions. You can do that for people. You can do that for God. It's all what the Bible would call worship. To have your heart bow to something, to give allegiance to something, is to worship, right? Worship is to devote yourself to honoring something or someone. Worship is an attitude that something or someone is greater than you are and thus deserves your respect. And and friends, Christian or not, knowingly or unknowingly, that is what we do. That is what it means to be a human being. So let me give you a few examples. Maybe you're not yet convinced. And which one of you brought the bugs in? Bugs around you? Maybe I brought them because they're up here. Uh, A couple of examples. A a young professional is doing really well at work. He's climbing the corporate ladder. He's the first one in the office and the last one to leave. His bonus last year was more than an entire year's salary as a waiter in college. This guy works all the time. He wakes up, he's thinking about work. He goes to sleep at night with his laptop in his lap. His productivity is astonishing. This is the kind of guy that everybody wants to have on your team at work because he's productive, doing good work, creative ideas, passion, intensity, drive. His wife and kid miss him but frankly, they enjoy what he's providing. They live in a nicer house than they ever imagined, drive nicer cars than they ever thought they would, go on really great vacations. And so all of that compels him to work harder and harder and harder and harder. Uh, Friends, he's not just working a lot. He's worshiping. Something is compelling that kind of life. And that compulsion is worship. Another example. She's headed into 11th grade. Freshman year was tough. Sophomore year was even tougher. Everybody else seems to have friends, full schedules, hundreds of followers on Instagram. 
School seems to be easy for them, and life is one constant party. Collectively, she spent dozens of hours staring into her closet with tears running down her face. Doesn't seem to be anything in there to wear that would make her feel better about herself. Fewer texts come, not as a helpful break, but more like a broken heart. She's recently started doing things to one guy and now another, stuff she never imagined she'd do. Maybe a boyfriend will seem to fix whatever's broken inside, and that's what boyfriends ask for. Friends, she's not just lonely going through typical teenage stuff. She's worshiping. That's what worship is. Are you with me? All right, maybe one more. He's pretty into fitness. Daily trips to the gym, a three-hour bike ride every Saturday. He devours men's health in runner's world, along with all the exercises and nutrition advice they contain. These kind of people are really strange. Uh, Race entries, fitness attire, supplements, a personal trainer. These things are becoming the biggest bucket in the budget. When he goes on work trips, he'll only stay where there's state-of-the-art workout facilities. If it's sleep or the gym, Jim wins. If it's time out with an old friend of the gym, Jim wins. If it's a necessary project at work or home, the gym wins. If it's church or the gym, the gym wins. Friends, it's, it's not merely that fitness is his thing. That's the way we tend to think about this. It's not just that that's his hobby. That's what he enjoys. It's that that's what he worships. You and I, whatever it is we're into, hi, Tim. Uh, Tim is one of our adopted missionaries here from the other side of the world. People worship where he's from, too. Let me see if I can segue that. You just stood off, jumped off the chair to me. We are worshiping people, whether we live on the other side of the world or here, whether we're into work or clothes or friends or fitness, we are worshiping people. That's what Psalm 96 is about. Human beings, in the words of the book of Genesis, are image bearers. Image bearers. This means that we must have something or someone to mirror or to represent or to image We are holding up something in front of us saying, this is what my life is supposed to reflect. And whatever that is, that's what we worship. That, let me say it again, is what it means to be a human being. You cannot escape this. The only question is, what is it that you're worshiping? And perhaps a follow-up, is that something worthy of your worship. We're all imitators. Whatever is ultimate to us is what we worship. And God graciously, kindly, wonderfully, tenaciously accepts no neutrality when it comes to worship. We either worship Him or we worship something else. 
That's why, for example, the book of Colossians refers to greed as idolatry. So it says, worshiping money is the equivalent of false idol worship. You still with me? We're going to read the passage in a minute. But it falls on completely deaf ears unless we understand the way worship works. Anything we think of as worthy of first place is what we will worship. And fascinatingly, we become like what we worship. Greg Beale, in a great book about this, put it this way. What we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. That's a lot of R's. You've got to have a PhD to talk that way. What we revere, in other words, what we worship, we will end up looking like, either to our detriment or to our getting put back togetherness. That's the way I would put it. That's why understanding false worship isn't the stuff of thinking about Old Testament people bowing down to false little statues. It's about how we live everyday life. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is 1 John. A couple of years ago, we went through it. If it's something you never covered, I'd encourage you to grab a friend and read through that book together. If you want more information, the sermons are on our website. But 1 John says nothing about bowing down to little statues. It says all kinds of things about loving God, loving people, repenting when we sin. If we do that, we can be convinced that God is about the work of making us more like Christ. He were Christians. If we don't practice those activities, we're not Christians. That's what he says very plainly. And then he ends the book with this little strange verse. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He said nothing in the book about statues. But he said everything in the book about statues. Because fitness, the curves of your body, getting a spouse, having a child, getting a better job, all of those things can turn into idols. That's what the book of 1 John is about. And that is what Psalm 96 is about. So let's read it. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Friends, the resounding message of this psalm is there is one worthy of worship of all people everywhere. This innate desire that we have to worship something or someone has a right and proper object. It's a person. His name is God. The worship of God is right and good, and it's good for everyone, everywhere, forever. Amen? There is one who can handle the weight of sitting on the throne of our hearts. There is one in whom worship is properly placed. Unlike every idol that we've given our allegiance to, God doesn't disappoint. Worship of Him is good and right. The Lord is worthy of right worship of the entire world forever. Now this psalm moves through, it's a song, remember? It moves through multiple verses or, or stanzas. If we had a ton of time, I'd want to spend a good bit of time on each of those stanzas. But instead, what I'd like to do today is to offer a couple of general comments about the psalm as a whole in hopes of really driving its meaning down into our hearts. So a couple comments, if I could. Uh, First, this psalm is clearly about a call to worship the Lord publicly. Do, Do you hear that in it? It is a triumph, an announcement, calling first God's people to worship Him publicly, but then calling the whole world to worship Him publicly together. We live in a time that worship is thought of and even in most churches heralded as a private, individualized activity. It's something, if you do it at all, you should do it at at loan. You should do it at home, alone. If you need to summarize that, it's at loan. It's something you do at loan, home alone. Should you worship God at home alone? Yes, of course. But we ought never to be satisfied with only private, individualized worship. The majority of the Bible isn't talking about that kind of worship. It's talking about public worship. Friends, people enter the kingdom of God individually, but being a Christian is never individualistic. In other words, you can't get saved by being born into a family where there's some Christians. You can't get saved by sitting in a room where there happen to be other Christians. You can't get saved by being in a country where there's a lot of Christians. You can only enter the kingdom of God by bending your knee, admitting sin, and calling on Jesus to save you. That's the only way. But that activity then ushers you into the great kingdom of God, the family of God. We're all to join local churches and worship publicly together every week. 
our lives of public worship are what actually drive our lives of private worship, not the other way around. And in God's strength everywhere, we're to proclaim his message around the world until every person has heard who God is and what God has done in Christ. That's the great mission task that's been given to God's people, is to proclaim his name to all people everywhere. So our lives of public worship are to be about that. And as Todd so wonderfully prayed, the nations come to us, Church on Mill, in the form of students and scholars. We have extremely unusual opportunity in that the nations are here, that they can hear, and then by God's grace, we'll go back all over the world with the message of the gospel. That's good news. Now listen to the words this psalm uses to describe God. Great, worthy, praise, feared above all gods, honor, majesty, strength, beauty. All of those words are talking about one person, God, saying that God is like that. The singing and praising and praying and rejoicing and proclaiming that the psalm calls us to is rooted in who God is and what God has done. You'll notice back in verse 1, a, a weird phrase. It says, sing to the Lord what? A new song. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I first start studying this passage to prepare to talk about it, and I come across that phrase, my tendency is to think he's talking about the rest of the psalm. So, in other words, the new song is the song of the psalm. Does that make sense? So, when you turn on your Spotify and they say, we got a new song, what are you expecting? A new song. So, what comes next is a, a newly released song by some sometimes new or sometimes old artists. That isn't what he means, though. And this is where a really great picture of the significance of this psalm historically pops up. It doesn't refer to the new song of the psalm, meaning listen to this new song I came up with. But rather it means listen to the new things God has done. Listen to the fresh ways in which God is at work. Now how do we know that? Well, going to seminary didn't teach me that. You don't have to go there to get it. If you type in an online Bible the phrase, a new song, you'll find a whole bunch of times that phrase is used in the Bible. And it's a way of introducing God is doing a new thing. God's at work. It's the equivalent of what we might say to each other. I got to tell you something really cool God's doing. Now, hopefully one-on-one, -on -one, you don't then start singing to each other. That's kind of weird. But I guess you can. It is biblical. So a portion of this psalm's text was first written by David, and it was used, those of you who have read through the Bible might remember this incident. There was a time that the, what was called the Ark of the Covenant, so the place God chose to mainly manifest himself at this period of time in the Old Testament. The very epicenter of God's glory, if you will, was for a season outside of the city of Jerusalem. 
But then once the, the tabernacle was constructed, they threw a huge, massive blowout party. There was some stuff that would make some of you way uncomfortable. And they took this tabernacle, this um, Ark of the Covenant, into the city of Jerusalem. And David is acting like someone who really loves God. He throws a massive party. There's dancing. There's singing. There's this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And what does David sing? He sings a new song. He sings a portion of these words. So David, not the author of this particular psalm in this particular moment, wrote that. It would have been a glorious moment to, to watch. And so the psalmist takes that historical event and he presses it into his current experience and says God's doing a new thing yet again. God's still at work. There's still a new song, a new work of God in our hearts. Friends, God is still writing new songs. Isn't he? A, a new song is a fresh act of God today. God is, is writing new songs on the tapestry of our own hearts, on our families, on our church, on our city, and ultimately on the whole planet. The biggest hit, so the number one blockbuster, that the biggest number one new song God will ever sing is prophesied in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says in chapter 5. Then they sang a, isn't that cool? I feel like I'm trying to drum up interest in you. But friends, all of your measly, low desires are rooted in worshiping the wrong thing. There is a new song worthy of giving your life to. And here's what it says. They sing a new song. So this is looking forward to what History is racing towards. Somehow in the shootings in Orlando and in the conversion of a sinner that might happen in this room today, somehow God is using everything to race forward to this moment when Christ returns and all of his people together sing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you, Jesus, were slain. And by your blood you ransom people from every tribe and late. Uh, I'm having trouble today. Tribe and language and people and nations. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is the song that whatever God is doing in your life, Christian, is ultimately about. Your little hit is about that big hit. Everything in life is about that moment. Isn't that great news? You are not some minor, pathetic little story in something that doesn't matter. You're about what God is doing in the in whole entire history of humanity. 
What the psalmist in Psalm 96 is teaching us through a very emotional appeal is God alone can rightly handle worship. Everything else will disappoint. Everything. Even if you climb to the very top of your career, you have the nicest job in town, you have sex with the most beautiful person you could ever find, God fills your quiver with kids, you get rid of the lousy spouse you have. I mean, I can go on down the list. If you get the very best thing your heart hopes for, it will come up empty. Only God can handle being the object of our worship. Now look at verse 4. There's a really cool phrase that demands close attention. It says, God is to be feared among all gods. The gods of all the other nations are mere idols. So the comparison there is what? Not rhetorical. God and idol. Okay, we, we, unless we're talking about that show that just ended, most of us don't use the word idol. American Idol. Unless we're talking about that show, we don't often think of that word in this setting. God or idol. But the Hebrew word for idol, so this would have been originally written in Hebrew, means a no thing. Or in other words, a good for no thing. That's what the word idol means. It means a no thing. That's cool. Everything else you and I give our lives to Everything else that holds our greatest affection and love is a no thing. It's a nothing. But God, He is an everything. Several places in the Old Testament the text basically mocks people for worshiping idols. It says they're a carved piece of wood. You took a piece of wood or a stone, you carved it, and now you're bowing to it and praying to it and begging it to be kind to you. You're incredibly stupid. That's what... That is what the Old Testament says. Now, frankly, I think we feel arrogant and superior and removed from that. But all we've done is cut out the middle thing. Because in the Old Testament, those pieces of wood, those, those statues, these people weren't idiots. They weren't actually worshiping the piece of wood. They carved something believing that it represented something else and that it could provide them with what they needed. So you had an idol for everything. You had an, an idol for fertility. You had an idol for rain. 
You had an idol for sun. You had an idol for food. You had an idol for beauty. You had an idol for everything. We are no better off. We've just cut out the middle thing. Do you see that? All people everywhere are idol worshipers. It doesn't make any difference if you have the statue or not. And all of those things are no things. Why does God despise idol worship? Why does God expect undivided, exclusive worship? Why does God say, worship him and him alone? Why does he say, it's not enough to give me 75% of your allegiance, and then you can have your fun on the side? As long as I have more than those other things, that's good enough. Why does God so relentlessly say, that doesn't do? I think there's two main reasons. One is, as this psalm so wonderfully describes, he's worthy. God made everything. He's the creator. He's the king. He's in charge. That inherently makes him worthy of our worship, right? So, for those of us in the room that are rule followers, straight arrows, we like having boundaries to live within, and that's a lot of this particular church. That's enough for you. Simply knowing it's right. And I think that's really great. I'm not wired like you. So, to the few of us in the room like me, it's not just, though, that that's right. It's also that it's good. That it works. Let me see if I can explain that. God knows that living for anything less than him. God knows that if the posture of my heart is to bow before something or someone other than him, then eventually... That will leave me enslaved, broken, dissatisfied, and without joy. God knows it doesn't work. God is actually not at all like your dad. He's not angry. He's not absent. He doesn't make arbitrary rules. He doesn't love disciplining you just to show that he's more powerful than you are. God's a good dad. So everything God commands, God commands because he knows it's good for us. He knows it's the best for us. So he says, don't bow down to sex because the very best sex can't possibly actually satisfy your soul. And those of you who are sleeping around, or who are addicted to porn, or who dress to get men or women to look at you a certain way, you know that. But it's become an addiction because you become what you worship. And God knows not only is that not right, it's not good. 
doesn't work. It's broken. Friends, idols lie. They're liars. The man we talked about earlier that works 70 hours a week to buy nice things, to have that best office, that can't fill the void in his life, that gaping hole for an actual object worthy of worship. Won't work. The teenager we talked about, no amount of friends or sex or boyfriends or popularity or trending on Twitter can match the satisfaction of knowing and resting in the Creator loves me. And the dude infatuated with fitness, it does not matter how hard he tries. Eventually, his body's going to break down. Stuff's going to sag, and he's going to die. He might delay it, but that's the future Friends, idols never fail to fail. They lie. It doesn't work. But God, God is the rightful recipient of love and affection. So he hates it because it's, it's right. He deserves worship. But he also hates it because he knows where it leads us. And he wants what's best for us. So worship him. Everything else we put in a place of prominence will eventually let us down. Everything. Even good things. Everything will break under the weight of worship, except for God. Friends, God's worthy of worship because, this psalm tells us, He created everything. He's full of honor and power and majesty and strength and beauty. He's the only true God precisely because he's the creator. Did you know that last month NASA announced that the Kepler mission identified 1,284 new planets? Now there's debate in our own little solar system, our own little galaxy about how many planets there are. How many of you are really for Pluto? Like you're, you're, I'm with you. Pluto's awesome. But even if you go for Pluto, how many is that? Nine. We flip out when there's a night that you can see Mars. We become like kids at Halloween. The red planet! And for the first time, in the history of humanity, we have found 1,284 new planets. Wow! God made those. With this. Words. You can give yourself to the little tiny stuff of life. Or you can give yourself to that God. That's the choice put before us. There is no third option. The God who spoke words and we're still discovering 
planets. Or the no things. Now what this psalm is trying to do for us is to provoke this. Imagine being a human being, living your life, doing the very best you know how, and no one's ever told you this. Imagine all the people around you have never heard of God. They have no knowledge that salvation is available in Christ. They're doing the best they can with the knowledge they have. And every day they get up, some of them are lazy bums. But some of them work hard and try to do good. But all of them, every single one, is lost, headed to hell, and worshiping no things. For those of us that know, and that are in, 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 were captured by a God who would choose to love us and place us in a place that we can hear the gospel and give us the Bible that we can know the truth and friends that we can grow up in Christ. What ought to be exploding in our hearts is there are people who don't yet know And the greatest thing we can possibly spend our lives on is announcing the gospel of Christ to people who have yet to hear. The God who made all those planets, the God who we willfully rebelled against, that God sent Jesus, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again. So that through him, Salvation is available to all who will respond in faith. Amen? There is no one too far gone. Brothers and sisters, that's the message we should proclaim. Idols are worthless. God is worthy. And that power, that gospel, that good news is for all people everywhere. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved rescued from wasting your life on no things for the God who's everything. Friends, uh, uh, six months ago, I planned to preach this message today. Little did I know that last Sunday afternoon, we would announce to the church body that an unprecedented opportunity is presented to us as a church family. Two international ministries that have existed for a long time doing good work have said, let's join and lock arms so that we together can do everything possible in God's strength to tell the 12,000 plus people that live here short term, did not come here for Jesus, came here for a degree, most of them are from China, Saudi Arabia, and India. People extremely unlikely to ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ at home. Have crossed oceans 
to get here. And God's given us the call to cross the street. And so Life Among the Nations and, and ICOM are joining hands and ministries. And we want, by God's grace, to see thousands of people hear the truth of Jesus Christ. And should we go across the globe? Absolutely. That's why we have partners in many corners of the world. But the most pressing opportunity given to us is right here. So when you leave, you're going to be handed a piece of paper that will explain this ministry. And Eric, Eric, would you stand, brother? Eric is our director of college ministries who's now going to act temporarily as the director of both of these initiatives, the American, traditional American college student and those that are coming from all over the world and help lead, by God's grace, a whole staff of missionaries serving that campus with an army of volunteers of which, frankly, I didn't tell you you could sit down, boy. I'm kidding. (laughs) Totally joking. (laughs) Hopefully, honestly, whether it's in addition to your offering, you support one of these missionaries. We are already interviewing people who are jumping up saying, I want to do that with my life. Isn't that cool? I haven't even op- advertised the opportunity. There will be more come. Perhaps in addition to your offering, you want to say, I want to bless a person who wants to do that with their life. That'd be a tremendous gift. Maybe... You're, you're in the sunset years of your life. You no longer have the health to go over to the campus and walk around and meet people. W- would you spend an hour a day praying that those who do hear who God would have them go to and share it effectively? That's ever much needed as the person that goes and the person that gives. Would you sign up and join the, the literally probably here today 15 people who for decades have been giving themselves to this work faithfully. Would you consider locking arms with them? Erica will lead a couple of meetings over the summer with ways in which you can get involved in the fall. This is a really exciting time in the life of Church on the Mill. ASU's goal in the next four years is that that number 12,000 would hit 20,000 and that we would be the largest international student population in the United States. And God in his greatness, his sovereignty, his kindness has planted Church on Mill right here. Some of you are here today from one of those other countries and we would say, we love you. We will love you whether or not you respond to the gospel or not. We want to befriend you We will care for your needs. The greatest need you have, we believe, is to move from worshiping nothing, a no thing, to worshiping God. Right, church? Brothers and sisters, the Lord reigns. May we announce that with joy. And like nothing else actually is worthy of worship because that's the truth. So in response, would you stand and we're going to sing together a song 